0: Brought to you with the natural goodness of Viridian Nutrition. Available at Browns. I'm Trudy Kerr and welcome to The Interviewer. In this series I talk to artists, campaigners, men and women of influence, musicians, performers, sportsmen and women, politicians, businessmen and women, and anyone who shapes the fabric of our society. It would be impossible for a single person in Malta not to know that we're just days away from a general election, whether through the news, social media feeds, mobile phone game ads, billboards, banners, all over the island, letterbox flyers, or just general conversation at the convenience store. We've been bombarded by pre-election media over the past month and beyond, And to unpack this intense feed of wanted or unwanted information, I'm joined by Ivan Martin, an esteemed journalist with The Times of Malta. Ivan is one man who has a very clear understanding of Malta's political landscape, both as a writer with The Times, but also you've had first-hand experience being involved in issues such as the 2020 attempt by Jürgen Fenix' defence team to bribe you. You have first-hand experience. So who is better to make sense of the theatre surrounding this election than you? Ivan, thank you so much for being with me here on The Interviewer. Thank you for taking the time. You are a journalist with The Times. Just give a little bit of background information.
1: Hi, Trudy. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a reporter of The Times, like you said, and I've been working with The, the Times of Malta as a journalist since 2013, uh, just after the 2013 election. That's when I, I jumped in. Um, I'm a political correspondent for The Times, so I cover politics from the ground up in Malta.
0: So you really are the person that I need to be talking to? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the 2013 election. I have actually been here for four, this would be my fourth election. So I was here. 16 years ago, and I've seen the country change and the political climate change and a whole bunch of things going on. But this election feels very different. It has a very different mood around it. Am I wrong? Is that right? Am I, am I just not quite getting No, it? you're
1: right. You're right. It is a different election. And um, of the, this will be the third general election I'm covering for The Times now. And I don't remember any of the, either of the two before it being as limp as this one is. Even if you look at the engagement on timesofmoto.com, it's a general election campaign, yet uh, our readers seem more interested in what's going on in Ukraine, what's happening with the pandemic. Even sports sometimes is is, uh, more widely read than what's happening with the election.
0: Is that just because there's a lot of stuff going on or is that because there just isn't an interest in the election? Because in fairness, there is a lot of stuff going on right now. We do have that crisis in Ukraine, which is getting to a very hot temperature at the moment. But we also have coming out of the pandemic. We all saw that this was going to be over. We are endemic. We're all going to get move on with our lives. And suddenly we're seeing figures flying up all over Europe and here in Malta as well. And you mentioned sports as well. There's a whole bunch of things. So is it just because there's a lot of noise going on that no one, less people are focused on the election? Or is there really not that much interest?
1: So this is a question I've been asking myself and asking people I I, I work with. uh, Why? And uh, I guess it's a number of reasons. Like you said, there's fatigue. Um, we've just come out of this pandemic and now there's Ukraine happening as well. So a lot of our attention is, is taken up with that. But at the same time, there's a number of things that are quite unique about this election. And that's, that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. So we're in the last week now of an election campaign. Um, but like we said, engagement is low. And why is that? So aside from the fatigue and COVID and Ukraine, there are other factors that are unique about this specific election here in Malta. Labour has won two general elections in a row. They're going for the hat trick now. Um, They've won by massive majorities, landslide majorities. They've won by 30-something thousand, and then again by 35, some say 40. It's a bit contentious because there are a number of um, coalition seats involved with the the opposition. But massive majorities in a country where past elections were won by 2,000 votes, one thousand something votes. Yeah. So
0: the the election that my first election was won by the nationalists came in by one thousand four hundred and sixteen votes. I do believe. I remember it because I remember thinking,
1: what? Yeah. The number of people that live in a street, a e- medium-sized exactly, street. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so there's there's one question with the election is is it a foregone conclusion? They've got such a massive majority now. They're going into the third, and the polls all indicate that they're going to win. Now. I mean, when you're playing a game with someone and they keep beating you, when they beat you the third time, it's not that much of a surprise. Now, just to unpack this a little bit more, I say it's three, they're going for three. But in actual fact, there are midterms in between general elections and they've won those. They've won those consistently. In fact, if they win this, it will be their 10th election victory in a row. Right? Wow. So they've been winning elections since the 2008 Lawrence Gonzi administration. Yeah. The Labour Party now. So there is a statistical trend here that is quite long, quite significant, beyond just three general elections. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that, that's one reason I think why engagement is, 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 is quite low. At the same time, um, while there's a one month election campaign, Before the prime minister blew the whistle, so more that's the prime minister's prerogative to decide when an election race starts, before he actually blew the whistle, there had been this anticipation building up, will he call it, won't he call it, for weeks, maybe even a couple of months. So a three-month election campaign, two-and-a-half-month election campaign, it gets kind of boring for, for people to be engaged with, especially when it's a foregone conclusion, or many would say it's a foregone conclusion.
0: In fact, your colleague, Mark Lawrence, mate, was saying on this show, we we talked just straight after Christmas, even before there was a hint of what the election date would be. He talked about this majority. He talked about this 40 000 to 50,000 vote majority potentially and the impact that that had on democracy. We're just days away from the election. Is it really so much of a foregone conclusion? Can we just say, okay, not really worth putting on the television and seeing what happens because we know what's going to
1: happen? So, I mean, Bernard Gregg definitely wouldn't say so, right? But it's a mammoth task to overturn the majorities that Labour secured in 2013 and again in 2017, and with the midterms, they consistently secured these very strong mandates. So it's, it's an extraordinary task he's got ahead of him. Uh, it's not impossible, but the question people seem to be asking themselves is what will the gap between Labour and PN be rather than who's going to win this election? Is,
0: this the, is that then Bernard gregg's goal to reduce the gap? Because my question comes to you is if even PN know that there's a huge majority and it's unlikely that they're going to win, unlikely that they're going to win, anything could happen. But what is the goal of the Nationalist Party? if the opposition are unlikely to win? What are they hoping for?
1: Yeah, so... There's, there's Robert Abela and there's Bernard Gregg going into this election. Now, for Robert Abella, he will be trying to secure... First of all, he's trying to secure his first mandate because he's an unelected prime minister. He took over from Joseph Muscat and he was handpicked by a very relatively small group of Labour Party members, right, compared to the entire electorate of the country. So he's looking for his first mandate to actually have a legitimate government and lead the government. He'll also be looking at the gap Right. And he'll be looking at the gap that Joseph Muscat secured in 2013 and 17 and hoping that he can at least match that, if not better it. Right. A number of the things that Joseph Muscat was criticized for, he has at least endeavored in some way to address. Right. Right. Um, He's also, for better or worse, navigated the country to, through this pandemic. So he'll be hoping to better that, better the 2017, which is already, you know, an unbelievable drubbing at the polls. Then there's Bernard Gregg. And Bernard Greck is going into this, I think, in quite, with quite a pragmatic approach. Uh, when he's in front of the camera, he talks about the Nationalist Party being in it to win it. Of course he does, right? When I speak to people close to Bernard Greg, what they tell me is that he'll be hoping for a gap that starts with the number two, right? He wants anything below 30. Anything below 30 for him, his advisors tell me, is a win. It shows that he's managed to claw back some of that um, gap between the two parties. And he will then be able to go to his own supporters and say, I've done this in two years, right? I came in halfway through a mandate. Give me the full term, give me five years, and watch how I'll turn this into a wave against Labour and win the next election in five years' time. So I don't think Bernard Gregg would admit this, but I'm sure that in the forefront of his mind, he's hoping, come on, let's get this at least 29 I think personally, even anywhere in the low 30s, is quite an accomplishment.
0: Wow. As with every election, there has been a lot of mudslinging out there at the moment. And one of the things you mentioned there that. Robert Abella came in and took over the Labour Party. And yes, he walked straight into a pandemic. He walked into a very difficult situation. And you can't take that away from him. He walked into a difficult political situation, but also then he walked into a situation which affected the whole world. And now we're seeing a different crisis with what's happening in Ukraine and the effect that we are going to be seeing that in Malta as well. But there is always a lot of mudslinging in these campaigns in Malta. But this time, it seems like there's, you know, even a little bit more of this mudslinging. Are all the accusations true? Are they exaggerations made up on a little bit of truth? Or are they completely made up? As a and as a layperson, how do I determine...
1: How do you navigate yeah, it? Yeah,
0: how do I determine which is true and which is
1: not? That's a really interesting question. So if we look at the the last election, the 2017 election, Joseph Muscat called that in the middle of a political crisis, right? The opposition were making huge claims of corruption about him and his family. And he reacted to that by calling an election. And there was this super tense um, air in the country. They were at war. They were they really were at war, and you could see this animosity between Joseph Muscat and Simon Busatil. Fast forward to today's election, and the situation is quite different, right? Robert Abela has really tried to pick his moment and it hasn't been forced upon him by any any scandal. He he wasn't out of control and and knew that he had to call an election. He, he had all the time in the world to pick his moment. In fact, there was a good five months or so when everyone was asking, when's he going to call this election? It's mm-hmm. going to be now, mm-hmm. will it be early, will he go all the way to June? Um, so the mudslinging this time, what's happening now? There's been a couple of stories, but they're not the big crises, big, huge scandals that we saw in 2017. Instead, they seem at times to be almost frivolous compared to 2017, right? When you're talking about the prime minister and his wife involved in a huge uh, alleged money laundering scandal with a bank that was later shut down. I mean, you, could, you couldn't make this stuff up, right? It was, it was crazy. Today, what we're talking about is um, Robert Abella's past as a private practitioner, as a lawyer, and the ethics of the way he conducted himself there's some serious questions there about the way that he acted as a lawyer for the planning authority while getting involved in planning applications for people who are now alleged to have been involved with some serious crimes. So there's some def- there's definitely some question marks hanging over Robert Abella. at the same time he's hit back at Bernard Grech with a couple of a couple of barbs about his property, about his taxes. They seem a little bit limp. They seem they don't really stand up. They don't have legs of their own. Um, so that's that's the way I see it at the moment in terms of the mudslinging.
0: So we can just forget about the mudslinging and just put that as as not particularly important. You mentioned this this issue about properties. I mean, it, it, supposedly we've got Robert Bela sending drones over Bernard Gregg's property to examine his property. We've got Bernard Gregg accusing Robert Bela of building outside ODZ land and way beyond regulations for ODZ land. I mean...
1: It should we just,
0: pants. I mean, but do we just not care? Do we just say, okay, it's not really important? Because I see the danger of that, of dismissing that, is if our leaders are sitting outside of the law and what's legal, what example are they giving to the rest of the country and the implications of that? Should they be squeaky clean or should we just say, well, you know, they're human?
1: Uh No. I think we should hold our leaders to the highest standard, right? Um, it was me and a colleague of mine at the Times that reported on Robert Abella's um, dealings as a, as a lawyer before he was prime minister. So I believe very much in that story. And I think that Robert Abella owes the country honest and, uh, an honest and frank explanation about what he was doing, which he hasn't really given yet. He's Are we going to see that? Well, we haven't seen it yet, right? What we've seen is him recite a very tight script and not deviate from it in any way. He's accused uh, reporters of spinning facts and manipulating a story. Um, And he sort of avoided journalists for a couple of days until I think he cleared his head and figured out what he was going to do and how he's going to approach the story. So, yeah, we, we do have to expect the top standard from our leaders, and we we don't seem to be getting that.
0: We have seen an awful lot of sitting outside the law from a lot of people in power. Do you think that's had an impact on society, Malta, that we have today? Does that filter down from the top to the layman on the street?
1: Hmm. I mean, I wouldn't presume to... to, to speak for, for the man on the street, right? I just got off the street myself, <laughs> walked in here. But uh, it doesn't set the right example, does it? You know, it doesn't set the right example. It doesn't send out the right message, in my opinion, as a, a taxpayer, as someone who's just trying to build a career the honest way from, from the ground up. To me, it, it doesn't resonate with the way I'm trying to lead my life.
0: Changing the subject for a second. There have been a lot of promises made by all the parties. And this always happens. But whether they relate to the environment, free contraception, pensions, there's always a promise uh, that is made at election time. Are these promises carried through? Or are they greenwashing, whitewashing, or whatever washing? Are we going to see a beautiful, pedestrianised Floriana or a metro system because it was pom- promised on the campaign? Or should we just be sceptical?
1: Well, oh, I think uh, a dose of scepticism is, is definitely healthy when it comes to the way we uh, weigh political parties' promises. And I think the, way, the best way to navigate these pledges is to look for specific details when a party starts giving you specific itemized details of what they're going to do with a project, I find that a lot lot more believable. And it's these very broad pledges that that I think we should be most skeptical of, right? I think the textbook uh, example of this is in 2013, Joseph Muscat's administration came out with a billboard and a pledge, right? And that billboard said, priorita um, for the environment to really be a priority. And that became the sort of butt of a joke then over the next seven years or so, because even top Labour Party officials concede that uh, the environment wasn't given the importance that it should have. In fact, over the past sort of two years or so, they've been trying to steer that both towards a greener policy, some have called it greenwashing, but at least there's been uh, an acknowledgement of, hang on a second, we haven't really um, prioritised the environment in the way that we said we should. So it's these broad, very open-ended pledges like, oh, don't worry, we've got the environment, it's going to be fine. Things like that, I'm super sceptical of. When they come out with itemized details of how they're going to deliver something, I find that a lot more credible. And I think that's what people should be looking at. The devil is in the detail.
0: And it's really interesting that I use the word promise and you use the word pledge. Mm -hmm. Because a promise and a pledge are miles apart. Oh, yeah. But when I see something in black and white, we are going to do this. To me, that's a promise, not a pledge. What you're suggesting is we look at all of these statements as an intent mm-hmm. rather than an actual it's going to happen and scale the validity of whether they're going to happen on how much detail is in that pledge.
1: Precisely. And if we look at, for instance, you mentioned it yourself, the Metro um, proposal, right, which they announced just before the election, just before Robert Bella blew the whistle. Um, I know for a fact that the government had received a very detailed document on the metro um, plan years before they announced it and unveiled it to the public. I remember being sat with a top government official about four years ago and being told, we've got the document, um, it's all ready, and I remember trying to trying to get them to, to leak it to me, and they and, and they didn't. Is the end of that story. But so they've had this pledge there, they've had this um, party, party trick that they've, they've sat on and, and, and used just before the election, right? Now, what are the time scales, for, time frames for, the, for this project? We're talking over the next 20 years or so, right? So a legislator is only five years long. Are they going to deliver a metro? Are they going to deliver the first phase of a metro? Are they going to do the initial studies for a metro? Are they going to issue a tender for a foreign company to come over and just do a study on whether or not it's viable?
0: So we're not going to see a metro?
1: Not in the next legislature, that's for sure.
0: So this is a statement, this is an intent, this is a pledge that is unlikely to come into fruition, certainly in in, as you said, in in this government's lifetime. Which leads me on to my next question. If all of these promises or pledges are such good policies and worthy of bringing into a campaign, why haven't they been done before? If the environment is so important that you rest your campaign on people believing that you're committed to the environment, surely it would have been a more truthful and more valid to have implemented an environmental policy two, three, four years ago and people to be able to say, wow, this government is really meaning their crap about the, policy, about the environment. But that's not what we're seeing.
1: Yeah, and I think um, political parties should be, should be measured against that, right? So the two main parties, as they go into this election, I think the electorate should be looking at them and judging what they say they're going to deliver against what they actually delivered over the past five years. Robert Abella, for instance, regularly talks about his, what he views as his accomplishments. The way he navigated the pandemic, the way he implemented certain reforms, the way he took what he calls tough decisions, and that's Maltese polities for um, kicking people out that had become toxic in in the Labour Party. What he doesn't talk about is their failure with the environment, for instance, right? Um, So I think people should judge their environmental pledges or promises, if you will, against what they've delivered over the past five years.
0: So which of the topics, whether it be, let's say it's health and obesity, we've just had a, a, a statement talking about the obesity rate in Malta, whether it's health, whether it's environment, whether it's traffic and transport, whether it is a pension which is the ones that we can really trust which are the ones that we should be looking at and saying this is a government that delivered or this is a government an opposition potential government that we believe are going to deliver." which are the key ones that we should really be focusing on
1: well i guess it depends on what you think the priorities for the country are right yeah and um what I think are the priorities for the country might not be what you what what you think they are, right? And and this is why they have these such broad manifestos, right, that touch upon up I mean, the Labour Party's manifesto, right? Because I, I covered mostly the Labour Party during the selection campaign. Um, I, I really took a deep dive in that manifesto. And there's a thousand, a thousand pledges. Wow. This is by by a country mile. The, the largest political document in Malta's recent political history. They've got proposals on, on everything, right? And what they're doing there is casting a very wide net. And I know I'm not really answering your question on what I think the priorities are, but I think that's because what they're doing is casting as wide a net as possible to try and, and hit as many target audiences as they can. Whether they're the 16-year-old first-time voters, the, the 25-year-old female university student, or the 45-year-old accountant, or the 66-year-old pensioner, they're casting a very wide net and they're trawling the seabed of, Maltese, of the Maltese electorate trying to catch as many as they can, right? Robert Abella's got that one thing in mind, I need a big gap to secure a strong mandate,
0: you talked of, uh, right at the very beginning about lethargy, about the fact that we are quite tired, and I think a lot of people are also tired of this, these broken pledges or promises, and a lot of people are tired of the mudslinging and are tired of where we've been since two thousand seventeen. It has been a really a tough ride for the, for Malta. It's been a really tough time, both internally and the way that Malta is perceived externally. Do you think that will change people's vote when it comes on Saturday? Do you think people will stay away and not vote? Or maybe they'll vote for a third party or maybe they'll vote for an oppo- the opposition just because they, they want to see change. Or you'd think it's just going to be the landslide that we talked about right at the very beginning.
1: So we're in the final week here now, and in all the election campaigns I've covered, every time we've come close to the final day, both leaders are very concerned about abstention, about people staying at home, and they rally their supporters to bring out the vote, what they call bring out the vote, right? And there's a trend here, a statistical trend. If we look at the past few elections, starting from 2008, 2013, 17, and, and now this one, right? What we've seen is voter turnout and the number of valid votes cast dip from election to election to election. Now, Malta has a very high voter turnout rate, right? We're in the 90 percentile. Yeah, That's huge. I'm from compared. the UK.
0: That is unheard of.
1: Yeah. Um, but what we've seen is a dip, 1%, 1%, 1%. And now we're looking at 89 from 96. Now, there are different political surveys being conducted on, on, on the election turnout, and lots of different people are trying to predict what's going to happen. Times of Malta has a survey. The Labour Party has a survey. The National Party has a survey. Different media houses have surveys, right? And the, the big question mark really lies here in what the turnout is going to be. Some predict it will be in the 89 to 90%. Some predict it might be as low as 86%. Now, that's unfathomable in Morty's in recent political history. I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but if it does, it would definitely be noteworthy. It would be a, a new development, right? Um, recently, we heard some really big... Uh, names in the Labour Party, for instance, um, talk about how they're hearing a lot of disgruntled traditional Labour voters staying at home and that they won't vote and that they've had enough, right? Bernard Grech, on the other hand, keeps on referencing how important it is to vote them out. To Even if you're not quite sold with the PN, you've got to make a statement, vote PN, show these guys that you don't approve of them. So... Both parties are really pushing this um, anti-abstention narrative.
0: Although I read in the Times that abstention would swing in PN's favour.
1: So there's a hypothesis here. Okay. Right. And what it's based on is the past few elections and um, the trend we've seen with Labour securing about 55%. Now, yeah, I know, 55%. Um, Now, when you are an incumbent government, you tend to, as general political theory goes, hemorrhage, bleed a few voters, right? Over the course of legislature, you'll tick people off... People will be disappointed. In the Maltese context, you might not have helped someone out with a cheeky favour that they weren't really entitled to anyway. And you will lose voters. And they will naturally either migrate to the opposition or just protest and not vote, right? That's the general theory. So abstention generally tends to favour the opposition.
0: Listening to you, Ivan, thank you so much, because it is making so much sense of what is Been for the last two months a political soup. It has been difficult to navigate and to be able to to really make head or tail of as we started out right at the very beginning of a a different atmosphere. It does really feel different. So it was fantastic for you to explain why, and I really appreciate. My last question for you, going back to the man on the street, as you said you were just a few minutes ago. What should they be looking for in their vote if they are undecided? If I can't vote. But if I was going to vote for the first time, what am I looking for? Am I looking for the party? Am I looking for the for the policies? Am I looking for the pledges, which I'm going to say now instead of promises? Or are you looking for your local politician, which is in your mind the key indicator that you should really be focusing on?
1: I always prioritize, me personally, right, and I I don't really like to be prescriptive on what I think people should do in the voting booth, but that's just what I do, right? I always think about what I want the country to look like at the end of the next five years, and which of the two parties, I think, comes closest to that. And I think that's, that's the policy that's always worked for me.
0: Ivan, thank you so much for guiding us today. Thank you so much for being on the interviewer and making sense of this big soup that we're in right now.
1: Pleasure.